This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. What if comparing car insurance rates was as easy as putting on your favorite podcast? With Progressive, it is. Just visit the Progressive website to quote with all the coverages you want. You'll see Progressive's direct rate, then their tool will provide options from other companies so you can compare. All you need to do is choose the rate and coverage you like. Quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Comparison rates not available in all states or situations. Prices vary based on how you buy. This is the New Yorker Fiction Podcast from The New Yorker Magazine. I'm Deborah Treisman, fiction editor at The New Yorker. Each month, we invite a writer to choose a story from the magazine's archives to read and discuss. This month, we're going to hear The 548 by John Cheever, which was published in The New Yorker in April of 1954. He wondered what she had hoped to gain by a glimpse of him coming out of the office building at the end of the day. Then he wondered if she was following him. The story was chosen by Mary Gateskill, who's the author of three story collections and three novels, including The Mare, which was published in 2015. Hi, Mary. Hi. Last time you were on the podcast, you read a Nabokov story. Um, and this time, you knew pretty much right away that you wanted to read a Cheever story. Why was that? I think that I had been focused on his stories right around that time. I, I've been a lover of his stories for a while, but... I think I was particularly appreciative of this one, Art. At that moment, I had assigned it to a class. And one of the people in class, I, I, I owe her for this, I suppose, because it really did make me think about Cheever in a different way than I had. She kind of grudgingly admired the story but said he was a narcissist, mm -hmm. that she had read somewhere that his a therapist somewhere had declared that this was true. And I don't know why she even thought this was relevant, but it, it kind of made me think about him in a, in a more intensive way, and I began to think about how people judge writers like that and how what a different world he lived in. He did seek help. He did. He was, a, as it's known by, from his mm -hmm. journals, that he mm -hmm. was, he suffered a great deal as a human being, and, and he was deeply closeted as well, even though he seems to have had a certain degree of affection for his wife and certainly for his children. Uh, he was just somebody who had a very hard time with life. Given the circumstances of his life, to me, the, the beauty of the writing is so much more powerful. If he was, in fact, narcissistic, which I somehow doubt, but if he, if he was, he, he really produced remarkable work. It's difficult to be narcissistic and create as many characters. That observant, yeah. In that way, yeah. Although this character in the 548 is very, very observant. But I wouldn't, I don't know if he's narcissistic. He's pathological. Mm -hmm. but, um, but no, I think the depth of Cheever's um, ability to observe. And also, I, I have read at least some of his journals, and they, they just, they sound to me like an extraordinarily sensitive person who's aware of everybody in the room. Mm -hmm. um, certainly aware of his own feelings, but not exclusively. Mm -hmm. But you mentioned that, that you'd heard that he was somewhat neglected, in, at least in academia these days. Why do you think that is? I don't know, and I should say I'm not sure that that's true. Um, I don't remember now who told me that or where I read that, but perhaps because it seems very old-fashioned. And also, I, I, I have experienced myself that students, particularly graduate students, have a sort of aversion to white male writers of this time period. Even if they do like it, they feel like they're not supposed to. Mm -hmm. And he's definitely 
He fits the profile. <laughs> he was white <laughs> and male. Guilty as charged. <laughs> and, and, and classic. And, and this story, in a way, is evocative of, and other stories of his are evocative of the madman ethos. And his daughter, Susan, actually told me that the, somebody who, one of the people responsible for Mad Men actually said he, he based it partly on right. John Cheever's stories. Right. Does the 548 particularly have significance for you, this story? Well, it, it does in that it was one of the first of Cheever's stories that I read. Um, someone gave it to me because he thought I would like it, and I actually didn't like it. Mm-hmm. Um, this was back in the early 90s, and I thought it was too heavy-handed. I, I thought it was simplistic that the character, he, the male character, is obviously a very bad person, and the female character is a sort of pathetic victim. He does wrong. He's punished. The end. Mm-hmm. Rough justice prevails. The end. And I just thought, that's just not very interesting. But I, I looked at it again because I was looking for a story that I thought was simple enough for an undergraduate class that I actually was having a hard time with. Right. <laughs> I, thought, I thought they'll they'll appreciate, they'll understand that this yeah. this will be something that'll get their attention. I mean, revenge stories just kind of naturally. Mm-hmm. But when I read it that that time, in order to teach it, I was quite struck with it. It's not actually as simple as it appears. That these these characters are both. I, I feel now are, are are they're linked in a way that she's aware of and he's not, and also they're they're both tragic. Yeah, yeah. Well, let's listen to the story now, and then we'll talk some more. And now here's Mary Gateskill reading the five forty eight by John Cheever. The five forty eight. When Blake stepped out of the elevator, he saw her. A few people, mostly men waiting for girls, stood in the lobby watching the elevator doors. She was among them. As he saw her, her face took on a look of such loathing and purpose that he realized she had been waiting for him. He did not approach her. She had no legitimate business with him. They had nothing to say. He turned and walked toward the glass doors at the end of the lobby, feeling that faint guilt and bewilderment we experience when we bypass some old friend or classmate who seems threadbare or sick or miserable in some other way. It was 5.18 by the clock in the Western Union office. He could catch the express. As he waited his turn at the revolving doors, he saw that it was still raining. It had been raining all day and he noticed now how much louder the rain made the noises of the street. Outside, he started walking briskly east towards Madison Avenue. Traffic was tied up, and horns were blowing urgently on a crosstown street in the distance. The sidewalk was crowded. He wondered what she had hoped to gain by a glimpse of him coming out of the office building at the end of the day. Then he wondered if she was following him. Walking in the city, we seldom turn and look back. The habit restrained Blake. He listened for a minute, foolishly, as he walked, as if he could distinguish her footsteps from the worlds of sound in the city at the end of a rainy day. Then he noticed ahead of him on the other side of the street a break in the wall of buildings. Something had been torn down. Something was being put up. But the steel structure had only just risen above the sidewalk fence and daylight poured through the gap. Blake stopped opposite here and looked into a store window. It was a decorator's or an auctioneer's. The window was arranged like a room in which people live and entertain their friends. 
There were cups on the coffee table, magazines to read, and flowers in the vases, but the flowers were dead, and the cups were empty, and the guests had not come. In the plate glass, Blake saw a clear reflection of himself in the crowds that were passing, like shadows at his back. Then he saw her image, so close to him that it shocked him. She was standing only a foot or two behind him. He could have turned then and asked her what she wanted, but instead of recognizing her, he shied away abruptly from the reflection of her contorted face and went along the street. She might be meaning to do him harm. She might be meaning to kill him. The suddenness with which he moved when he saw the reflection of her face tipped the water out of his hat brim in such a way that some of it ran down his neck. It felt unpleasantly like the sweat of fear. Then the cold water falling into his face and onto his bare hands, the rancid smell of the wet gutters and pavings, the knowledge that his feet were beginning to get wet and that he might catch cold, all the common discomforts of walking in the rain seemed to heighten the menace of his pursuer and to give him a morbid consciousness of his own physicalness and of the ease with which he could be hurt. He could see ahead of him the corner of Madison Avenue, where all the lights were brighter. He felt that if he could get to Madison Avenue, he would be all right. At the corner there was a bakery shop with two entrances, and he went in by the door on the Crosstown Street, bought a coffee ring like any other commuter, and went out the Madison Avenue door. As he started down Madison Avenue, he saw her waiting for him by a hut where newspapers were sold. She was not clever. She would be easy to shake. He could get into a taxi by one door and leave by the other. He could speak to a policeman. He could run. Although he was afraid that if he did run, it might precipitate the violence he now felt sure she had planned. He was approaching a part of the city that he knew well and where the maze of street-level and underground passages, elevator banks, and crowded lobbies made it easy for a man to lose a pursuer. The thought of this and a whiff of sugary warmth from the coffee ring cheered him. It was absurd to imagine being harmed on a crowded street. She was foolish, misled, lonely perhaps. That was all it could amount to. He was an insignificant man, and there was no point in anyone's following him from his office to the station. He knew no secrets of any consequence. The reports in his briefcase had no bearing on war, peace, the dope traffic, the hydrogen bomb, or any of the other international skullduggeries that he associated with pursuers, men in trench coats and wet sidewalks. Then he saw ahead of him the door of a men's bar. Oh, it was so simple. He ordered a Gibson and shouldered his way in between two other men at the bar so that if she should be watching from the window, she would lose sight of him. The place was crowded with commuters putting down a drink before the ride home. They had brought in on their clothes, on their shoes and umbrellas, the rancid smell of the wet dusk outside, but Blake began to relax as soon as he tasted his Gibson and looked around at the common, mostly not young faces that surrounded him and that were worried, if they were worried at all, about tax rates and who would be put in charge of merchandising. He tried to remember her name, Miss Dent, Miss Bent, Miss Lent, and he was surprised to find that he could not remember it, although he was proud of the retentiveness and reach of his memory, and it had only been six months ago. Personnel had sent her up one afternoon. He was looking for a secretary. 
he saw a dark woman in her twenties, perhaps, who was slender and shy. Her dress was simple. Her figure was not much. One of her stockings was crooked. But her voice was soft, and he had been willing to try her out. After she had been working for him a few days, she told him that she had been in the hospital for eight months and that it had been hard after this for her to find work, and she wanted to thank him for giving her a chance. Her hair was dark. Her eyes were dark. She left him with a pleasant impression of darkness. As he got to know her better, he felt that she was oversensitive and, as a consequence, lonely. Once when she was speaking to him of what she imagined his life to be, full of friendships, money, and a large and loving family, he had thought he recognized a peculiar feeling of deprivation. She seemed to imagine the lives of the rest of the world to be more brilliant than they were. Once she had put a rose on his desk, and he had dropped it into the wastebasket. I don't like roses, he told her. She had been competent, punctual, and a good typist, and he had found only one thing in her that he could object to, her handwriting. He could not associate the crudeness of her handwriting with her appearance. He would have expected her to write a rounded backhand, and in her writing there were intermittent traces of this, mixed with clumsy printing. Her writing gave him the feeling that she had been the victim of some inner, some emotional conflict that had in its violence broken the continuity of the lines she was able to make on paper. When she had been working for him three weeks, no longer, they stayed late one night and he offered, after work, to buy her a drink. If you really want a drink, she said, I have some whiskey at my place. She lived in a room that seemed to him like a closet. There were suit boxes and hat boxes piled in a corner, and although the room seemed hardly big enough to hold the bed, the dresser, and the chair he sat in, there was an upright piano against one wall with a book of Beethoven's sonatas on the rack. She gave him a drink and said that she was going to put on something more comfortable. He urged her to. That was, after all, what he had come for. If he had had any qualms, they would have been practical. Her diffidence, the feeling of deprivation in her point of view, promised to protect him from any consequences. Most of the many women he had known had been picked for their lack of self-esteem. When he put on his clothes again an hour or so later, she was weeping. He felt too contented and warm and sleepy to worry much about her tears. As he was dressing, he noticed on the dresser a note that she had written to a cleaning woman. The only light came from the bathroom. The door was ajar. And in this half-light, the hideously scrawled letters again seemed entirely wrong for her, as if they must be the handwriting of some other and very gross woman. The next day, he did what he felt was the only sensible thing. When she was out for lunch... He called personnel and asked them to fire her. Then he took the afternoon off. A few days later, she came to the office asking to see him. He told the switchboard girl not to let her in. He had not seen her again until this evening. Blake drank a second Gibson and saw by the clock that he had missed the express. He would get the local, the 548. When he left the bar, the sky was still light. It was still raining. 
he looked carefully up and down the street and saw that the poor woman had gone. Once or twice he looked over his shoulder walking to the station, but he seemed to be safe. He was still not quite himself, he realized, because he had left his coffee ring at the bar, and he was not a man who forgot things. This lapse of memory pained him. He bought a paper. The local was only half full when he boarded it, and he got a seat on the riverside and took off his raincoat. He was a slender man with brown hair, undistinguished in every way, unless you could have divined in his pallor or his gray eyes his unpleasant tastes. He dressed like the rest of us, as if he admitted the existence of sumptuary laws. His raincoat was the pale buff color of a mushroom. His hat was dark brown, so was his suit. Except for the few bright threads in his necktie, there was a scrupulous lack of color in his clothing that seemed protective. He looked around the car for neighbors. Mrs. Compton was several seats in front of him to the right. She smiled, but her smile was fleeting. It died swiftly and horribly. Mr. Watkins was directly in front of Blake. Mr. Watkins needed a haircut, and he had broken the sumptuary laws. He was wearing a corduroy jacket. He and Blake had quarreled, so they did not speak. The swift death of Mrs. Compton's smile did not affect Blake at all. The Comptons lived in the house next to the Blakes, and Mrs. Compton had never understood the importance of minding her own business. Louise Blake took her troubles to Mrs. Compton, and instead of discouraging her crying jags, Mrs. Compton had come to imagine herself as a sort of confessor and had developed a lively curiosity about the Blakes' intimate affairs. She had probably been given an account of their most recent quarrel, Blake had come home one night overworked and tired and had found that Louise had done nothing about getting supper. The gin bottle was half emptied and the first three glasses he took from the bar were smeared with lipstick grease. He had gone into the kitchen, followed by Louise, and he had pointed out to her that the date was the fifth. He had drawn a circle around the date on the kitchen calendar. One week is the twelfth, he had said. Two weeks will be the nineteenth. He drew a circle around the 19th. I'm not going to speak to you for two weeks, he had said. That will be the 19th. She had wept. She had protested. But it had been eight or ten years since she had been able to touch him with her entreaties. Louise had got old. Now the lines in her face were ineradicable, and when she clapped her glasses onto her nose to read the evening paper... She looked to him like an unpleasant stranger. The physical charms that had been her only attraction were gone. It had been nine years since Blake had built a bookshelf in the doorway that connected their rooms and had fitted into the bookshelf wooden doors that could be locked since he did not want the children to see his books. But their prolonged estrangement didn't seem remarkable to Blake. He had quarreled with his wife, but so did every other man born of woman. It was human nature. In any place where you can hear their voices, a hotel courtyard, an air shaft, a street on a summer evening, you will hear harsh words. The hard feeling between Blake and Mr. Watkins also had to do with Blake's family. 
but it was not as serious or as troublesome as what lay behind Mrs. Compton's fleeting smile. The Watkinses rented. Mr. Watkins broke the sumptuary laws day after day. He once went to the 814 in a pair of sandals, and he made his living as a commercial artist. Blake's oldest son, Charlie was 14, had made friends with the Watkins boy. He had spent a lot of time in the sloppy rented house where the Watkinses lived. The friendship had affected his manners and his neatness. Then he had begun to take some meals with the Watkinses and to spend Saturday nights there. When he had moved most of his possessions over to the Watkinses and had begun to spend more than half his nights there, Blake had been forced to act. He had spoken not to Charlie but to Mr. Watkins and had, of necessity, said a number of things that must have sounded critical. Mr. Watkins' long and dirty hair and his corduroy jacket reassured Blake that he had been in the right. But Mrs. Compton's dying smile and Mr. Watkins' dirty hair did not lessen the pleasure Blake took in settling himself in an uncomfortable seat on the 548 deep underground. The coach was old and smelled oddly like a bomb shelter in which whole families had spent the night. The light that spread from the ceiling down onto their heads and shoulders was dim. The filth on the window glass was streaked with rain from some other journey, and clouds of rank pipe and cigarette smoke had begun to rise from behind each newspaper. But it was a scene that meant to Blake that he was on the safe path. And after his brush with danger, he even felt a little warmth towards Mrs. Compton and Mr. Watkins. The train traveled up from underground into the weak daylight, and the slums and the city reminded Blake vaguely of the woman who had followed him. To avoid speculation or remorse about her, he turned his attention to the evening paper. Out of the corner of his eye, he could see the landscape. It was industrial, and at that hour, sad. There were machine sheds and warehouses, and above these he saw a break in the clouds, a piece of yellow light. Mr. Blake? Someone said. He looked up. It was she. She was standing there holding one hand on the back of the seat to steady herself in the swaying coach. He remembered her name then. Miss Dent. Hello, Miss Dent, he said. Do you mind if I sit here? I guess not. Thank you. It's very kind of you. I don't like to inconvenience you like this. I don't want to. He had been frightened when he looked up and saw her, but her timid voice rapidly reassured him. He shifted his hands, that futile and reflexive gesture of hospitality, and she sat down. She sighed. He smelled her wet clothing. She wore a formless black hat with a cheap crest stitched onto it. Her coat was thin cloth, he saw, and she wore gloves and carried a large pocketbook. Are you living out in this direction now, Miss Dent? No. She opened her purse and reached for her handkerchief. She had begun to cry. He turned his head to see if anyone in the car was looking, but no one was. He had sat beside a thousand passengers on the evening train. 
He had noticed their clothes, the holes in their gloves, and if they fell asleep and mumbled, he had wondered what their worries were. He had classified almost all of them briefly before he buried his nose in the paper. He had marked them as rich, poor, brilliant, or dull, neighbors or strangers, but no one of the thousands had ever wept. When she opened her purse, he remembered her perfume. It had clung to his skin the night he went to her place for a drink. I've been very sick, she said. This is the first time I've been out of bed in two weeks. I've been terribly sick. I'm sorry that you've been sick, Miss Dent, he said in a voice loud enough to be heard by Mr. Watkins and Mrs. Compton. Where are you working now? What? Where are you working now? Oh, don't make me laugh, she said softly. I don't understand. You poison their minds. He straightened his back and braced his shoulders. These wrenching movements expressed a brief and hopeless longing to be in some other place. She meant trouble. He took a breath. He looked with deep feeling at the half-filled, half-lighted coach to affirm his sense of actuality of a world in which there was not very much bad trouble after all. He was conscious of her heavy breathing and the smell of her rain-soaked coat. The train stopped. A nun and a man in overalls got off. When it started again, Blake put on his hat and reached for his raincoat. Where are you going? she said. I'm going up to the next car. Oh, no, she said. No, no, no. She put her white face so close to his ear that he could feel her warm breath on his cheek. Don't do that, she whispered. Don't try and escape me. I have a pistol, and I'll have to kill you, and I don't want to. All I want to do is to talk with you. Don't move, or I'll kill you. Don't, don't, don't. Blake sat back abruptly in his seat. If he had wanted to stand and shout for help, he would not have been able to. His tongue had swelled to twice its size, and when he tried to move it, it stuck horribly to the roof of his mouth. His legs were limp. All he could think of to do then was to wait for his heart to stop its hysterical beating so that he could judge the extent of his danger. She was sitting a little sidewise, and in her pocketbook was the pistol, aimed at his belly. You understand me now, don't you? she said. You understand that I'm serious. He tried to speak, but he was still mute. He nodded his head. Now we'll sit quietly for a little while, she said. I got so excited that my thoughts are all confused. We'll sit quietly for a little while, until I can get my thoughts in order again. Help would come, Blake thought. It was only a question of minutes. Someone, noticing the look on his face or her peculiar posture, would stop and interfere, and it would all be over. All he had to do was wait until someone noticed his predicament. Out of the window he saw the river and the sky. The rain clouds were rolling down like a shutter, 
and while he watched, a streak of orange light on the horizon became brilliant. Its brilliance spread. He could see it move, across the waves until it raked the banks of the river with a dim firelight. Then it was put out. Help would come in a minute, he thought. Help would come before they stopped again. But the train stopped. There were some comings and goings, and Blake still lived on, at the mercy of the woman beside him. The possibility that help might not come was one that he could not face. The possibility that his predicament was not noticeable, that Mrs. Compton would guess that he was taking a poor relation out to dinner at Shady Hill, was something that he would think about later. Then the saliva came back into his mouth and he was able to speak. Miss Dent. Yes? What do you want? I want to talk with you. You can come to my office. Oh, no. I went there every day for two weeks. You could make an appointment. No, she said. I think we can talk here. I wrote you a letter but I've been too sick to go out and mail it. I've put down all my thoughts. I like to travel. I like trains. One of my troubles has always been that I could never afford to travel. I suppose you see this scenery every night and don't notice it anymore, but it's nice for someone who's been in bed a long time. They say that he's not in the river and the hills, but I think he is. Where shall wisdom be found, it says. Where is the place of understanding? The depth saith, it is not in me. The sea saith, it is not with me. Destruction and death say, we have heard the force with our ears. Oh, I know what you're thinking, she said. You're thinking that I'm crazy, and I have been very sick again, but I'm going to be better. It's going to make me better to talk with you. I was in the hospital all the time before I came to work for you, but they never tried to cure me. They only wanted to take away my self-respect. I haven't had any work now for three months. Even if I did have to kill you, they wouldn't be able to do anything to me except put me back in the hospital, so you see, I'm not afraid. But let's sit quietly for a little while longer. I have to be calm. The train continued its halting progress up the bank of the river and Blake tried to force himself to make some plans for escape, but the immediate threat to his life made this difficult, and instead of planning sensibly, he thought of the many ways in which he could have avoided her in the first place. As soon as he had felt these regrets, he realized their futility. It was like regretting his lack of suspicion when she first mentioned her months in the hospital. It was like regretting his failure to have been warned by her shyness, her diffidence, and the handwriting that looked like the marks of a claw. There was no way now of rectifying his mistakes, and he felt, for perhaps the first time in his mature life, the full force of regret. Out of the window, he saw some men fishing on the nearly dark river, and then a ramshackle boat club that seemed to have been nailed together out of scraps of wood that had been washed up on the shore. Mr. Watkins had fallen asleep. He was snoring. Mrs. Compton read her paper, the train creaked, slowed, and halted infirmly at another station. Blake could see the southbound platform where a few passengers were waiting to go into the city. There was a workman with a lunch pail, a dressed-up woman and a man with a suitcase. 
they stood apart from one another. Some advertisements were posted on the wall behind them. There was a picture of a couple drinking a toast and wine, a picture of a cat's paw rubber heel, and a picture of a Hawaiian dancer. Their cheerful intent seemed to go no farther than the puddles of water on the platform and to expire there. The platform and the people on it looked lonely. The train drew away from the station into the scattered lights of a slum and then into the darkness of the country and the river. I want you to read my letter before we get to Shady Hill, she said. It's on the seat. Pick it up. I would have mailed it to you, but I've been too sick to go out. I haven't gone out for two weeks. I haven't had any work for three months. I haven't spoken to anybody but the landlady. Please read my letter. He picked up the letter from the seat where she had put it. The cheap paper felt abhorrent and filthy to his fingers. It was folded and refolded. Dear husband, she had written in that crazy wandering hand. They say that human love leads us to divine love, but is this true? I dream about you every night. I have such terrible desires. I have always had a gift for dreams. I dreamed on Tuesday of a volcano erupting with blood. When I was in the hospital, they said they wanted to cure me, but they only wanted to take away my self-respect. They only wanted me to dream about sewing and basket work, but I protected my gift for dreams. I'm clairvoyant. I can tell when the telephone is going to ring. I've never had a true friend in my whole life. The train stopped again. There was another platform, another picture of the couple drinking a toast, the rubber heel, and the Hawaiian dancer. Suddenly she pressed her face close to Blake's again and whispered in his ear, I know what you're thinking. I can see it in your face. You're thinking you can get away from me in Shady Hill, aren't you? Oh, I've been planning this for weeks. It's all I've had to think about. I won't harm you if you'll let me talk. I've been thinking about devils. I mean, if there are devils in the world, if there are people in the world who represent evil, is it our duty to exterminate them? I know that you always prey on weak people. I can tell. Oh, sometimes I think I ought to kill you. Sometimes I think you're the only obstacle between me and my happiness. Sometimes... She touched Blake with the pistol. He felt the muzzle against his belly. The bullet at that distance would make a small hole where it entered, but it would rip out his back a place as big as a soccer ball. He remembered the unburied dead he had seen in the war. The memory came in a rush. Entrails, eyes, shattered bone, ordure and other filth. All I've ever wanted in life is a little love she said. She lightened the pressure of the gun. Mr. Watkins still slept. Mrs. Compton was sitting calmly with her hands folded in her lap. The coach rocked gently, and the coats and mushroom-colored raincoats that hung between the windows swayed a little as the car moved. Blake's elbow was on the windowsill and his left shoe was on the guard above the steam pipe. The car smelled like some dismal classroom. The passengers seemed asleep and apart, and Blake felt that he might never escape the smell of heat and wet clothing and the dimness of the light. 
He tried to summon the calculated self-deceptions with which he sometimes cheered himself, but he was left without energy for hope or self-deception. The conductor put his head in the door and said, Shady Hill next, Shady Hill. Now, she said, now you get out ahead of me. Mr. Watkins waked suddenly, put on his coat and hat, and smiled at Mrs. Compton, who was gathering her parcels to her in a series of maternal gestures. They went to the door. Blake joined them, but neither of them spoke to him or seemed to notice the woman at his back. The conductor threw open the door, and Blake saw on the platform of the next car a few other neighbors who had missed the express, waiting patiently and tiredly in the wan light for their trip to end. He raised his head to see through the open door the abandoned mansion outside of town, a no-trespassing sign nailed to a tree, and then the oil tanks. The concrete abutments of the bridge passed so close to the open door that he could have touched them. Then he saw the first of the lampposts on the northbound platform, the sign, Shady Hill, in black and gold, and the little lawn and flower bed kept up by the Improvement Association. And then the cab stand and a corner of the old-fashioned depot. It was raining again. It was pouring. He could hear the splash of water and see the lights reflected in puddles and in the shining pavement, and the idle sound of splashing and dripping formed in his mind a conception of shelter so light and strange that it seemed to belong to a time of his life that he could not remember. He went down the steps with her at his back. A dozen or so cars were waiting by the station with their motors running. A few people got off from each of the other coaches. He recognized most of them but none of them offered to give him a ride. They walked separately or in pairs, purposefully out of the rain to the shelter of the platform where the car horns called to them. It was time to go home. Time for a drink. Time for love. Time for supper. And he could see the lights on the hill. Lights by which children were being bathed, meat cooked, dishes washed, shining in the rain. One by one, the cars picked up the heads of families until there were only four left. Two of the stranded passengers drove off in the only taxi the village had. I'm sorry, darling, a woman said tenderly to her husband when she drove up a few minutes later. All our clocks are slow. The last man looked at his watch, looked at the rain, and then walked off into it and Blake saw him go as if they had some reason to say goodbye. Not as we say goodbye to friends after a party, but as we say goodbye when we are faced with an inexorable and unwanted parting of the spirit and the heart. The man's footsteps sounded as he crossed the parking lot to the sidewalk, and then they were lost. In the station, a telephone began to ring. The ringing was loud, plaintive, evenly spaced and unanswered. Someone wanted to know about the next train to Albany, but Mr. Flanagan, the station master, had gone home an hour ago. He had turned on all his lights before he went away. They burned in the empty waiting room. They burned, tin-shaded, at intervals up and down the platform and with the peculiar sadness of dim and purposeless lights. They lighted the Hawaiian dancer, the couple drinking a toast, the rubber heel. I've never been here before, she said. 
I thought it would look different. I didn't think it would look so shabby. Let's get out of the light. Go over there. His legs felt sore. All his strength was gone. Go on, she said. North of the station there was a freight house and a coal yard and an inlet where the butcher and the baker and the man who ran the service station moored the dinghies from which they fished on Sundays, sunk now to the gunwales with the rain. As he walked toward the freight house, he saw a movement on the ground and heard a scraping sound, and then he saw a rat take its head out of a paper bag and regard him. The rat seized the bag in its teeth and dragged it into a culvert. Stop, she said. Turn around. How I ought to feel sorry for you. Look at your poor face. But you don't know what I've been through. I'm afraid to go out in the daylight. I'm afraid the blue sky will fall down on me. I'm like poor chicken licking. I only feel like myself when it begins to get dark. But still, and all, I'm better than you. I still have good dreams sometimes. I dream about picnics and heaven and the brotherhood of man and about castles in the moonlight and a river with willow trees all along the edge of it and foreign cities. And after all, I know more about love than you. He heard from off the dark river the drone of an outboard motor, a sound that drew slowly behind it across the dark water, such a burden of clear, sweet memories of gone summers and gone pleasures that it made his flesh crawl, and he thought of dark in the mountains and the children singing. They never wanted to cure me, she said. They... The noise of a train coming down from the north drowned out her voice, but she went on talking. The noise filled his ears in the windows where people ate, drank, slept, and red flew past. When the train had passed beyond the bridge, the noise grew distant, and he heard her screaming at him, Kneel down! Kneel down! Do what I say! Kneel down! He got to his knees. He bent his head. There, she said. You see, if you do what I say, I won't harm you because I really don't want to harm you. I want to help you. But when I see your face sometimes, it seems to me that I can't help you. Sometimes it seems to me that if I were good and loving and sane... Oh, so much better than I am. Sometimes it seems to me that if I were all these things, and young, and beautiful too, and if I called to show you the right way, you wouldn't heed me. Oh, I'm better than you. I'm better than you. And I shouldn't waste my time or spoil my life like this. Put your face in the dirt. Put your face in the dirt. Do what I say. Put your face in the dirt. He fell forward in the filth. The coal skinned his face. He stretched out on the ground, weeping. Now I feel better, she said. Now I can wash my hands of you. I can wash my hands of all of this. Because, you see, there is some kindness, some saneness in me that I can find and use again. I can wash my hands. Then he heard her footsteps go away from him, over the rubble. He heard the clearer and more distant sound they made on the hard surface of the platform. He heard them diminish. He raised his head. He saw her climb the stairs of the wooden footbridge and cross it and go down to the other platform where her figure in the dim light looked small, common, and harmless.
he raised himself out of the dust, warily at first, until he saw by her attitude, her looks, that she had forgotten him, that she had completed what she had wanted to do, and that he was safe. He got to his feet and picked up his hat from the ground, where it had fallen, and walked home. That was Mary Gateskill reading The 548 by John Cheever. The story first appeared in the April 10, 1954 issue of The New Yorker and is included in The Stories of John Cheever, which won the Pulitzer Prize in 1979 and was reissued by Vintage in 2011. Hi, I'm Deborah Treisman, fiction editor of The New Yorker. Each week on the Writer's Voice podcast, New Yorker fiction writers read their newly published stories from the magazine. You can hear from authors like Colson Whitehead. Turner nudged Elwood, who had a look of horror on his face. They saw it. Griff wasn't going down. He was going to go for it, no matter what happened after. Or Joy Williams. Her father was silent. Slowly, he passed his hand over his hair. This usually meant that he was traveling to a place immune to her presence a place that indeed contradicted her presence. She might as well go to lunch. Listen to new stories or dive into our archive of great fiction. You can find the work of your favorite fiction writers and discover new ones. Listen and follow The Writer's Voice wherever you get your podcasts. The questions around retirement have gotten... tiring. Instead of, have you saved up enough? Shouldn't they be asking, what is it that you love to do? And how can we help you keep doing it? The truth is, you're not slowing down. So your retirement plan should be more of an action plan. A hiking plan. A music plan. A sailing plan. The point is, whatever you're passionate about, we can help make sure you never stop. At Lincoln Financial, we have the products to help protect and grow your financial future so you can keep doing more of what you love. Make your pastimes last a lifetime at lincolnfinancial.com slash action plan. Lincoln Financial Group, marketing name for Lincoln National Corporation and its insurance companies and broker slash dealer affiliate Lincoln Financial Distributors, Inc. Copyright 2024, Lincoln National Corporation. This episode is brought to you by Empower. Can you retire early? Will there be enough money to leave an inheritance? Do you have savings for life's important milestones? If you have money questions, Empower has answers so you don't have to worry. With a real-time dashboard and real live conversations, you can get clarity on your real-life financial goals. Join 18 million Americans and take control of your financial future to empower what's next. Start today at Empower.com. So, Mary, when when you're listening to the story or reading the story, it takes a certain amount of time I suppose because we're in this very close third-person narrative, to realize just how sort of despicable he is, I feel as though the process of reading this story is one of sort of gradual withdrawal from this voice. Um, How do you think that's stage-managed? Well, it was certainly the way I read it the first time. Actually, I I, I didn't withdraw from him because I was very aware. I I thought the author's hand was rather heavy, Mm -hmm. like especially the statement many of the women, most of the women he had been with had been chosen for their lack of self-esteem. And then as he put on his clothes an hour later, she was weeping. (laughs) (laughs) But he couldn't be bothered to pay attention because he was so content and sleeping. Actually, that's a great line. But 
Yeah, I just felt it was so simplistic. But when I read it now, I actually get drawn into him a bit. He, On one hand, he is despicable, but there's something terribly vulnerable about him also, which I didn't notice at first. And there's definitely a sense that, I mean, at the beginning, especially when he's aware he's being followed, the feeling of the water trickling down his back and... Like the sweat of fear. Quickly frightened. Um, I mean, she doesn't seem to me the type of person you would suspect of holding a gun. Another man would turn and confront her with very little trouble. He's frightened quite easily. Also, that that the way his clothing is described, it's described as almost as if he's camouflaging himself or passing as something. Right, he's hiding. And he's so aware of details. It's almost like a person with some kind of disorder, like he needs to watch his environment so carefully and that he tunes into her handwriting like that, um, that he picks up on it. He's repulsed by it, but I actually think that's what draws him to her. Her vulnerability draws him. The fact that she can be easily victimized is clearly the the top-level thing that draws him. But I think he's also drawn because that the horrible handwriting, she's a very gross woman for his very gross man. They match each other. <laughs> well, so much is made of the, you know, this idea that she's sick or she's mentally ill, that she's been hospitalized, and she's she is, to some extent, deranged in these scenes. But in fact, as you read, you you, you kind of feel, well, she's not the only one, right? I mean, he is also... He is, as you say, he's he's obsessive. He is, maybe Cheever wasn't, but he is a narcissist. He controls his family through this kind of emotional, psychological abuse. And he experiences such shame. He doesn't want his children to see the books he keeps. Well, there's probably, probably they shouldn't. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. I mean, what do you think is in that bookshelf? But but do you, do you think of him as, as mentally ill? Um, in, in some definition, yeah. I mean, when I say I feel drawn into him, I mean as a reader. I certainly wouldn't want to know him and uh, like that. But but I feel I can become, as in the story, quite empathic to him as the story goes on because, yeah, I do. I, I mean, I, I'm uncomfortable with the term mentally ill, but as a broad stroke mm-hmm. term, yeah, I think that they're both not normal. They, they, they don't belong in the world in some way. She cannot hide it. And she knows it, and he can hide it, and he perhaps doesn't know it. He's found a way to to make himself seem as if he belongs. But I think that's almost, if not a worse position, as bad a position. Yeah. I mean, his his utter coldness to the people around him is can be shocking. You know, this isn't just a kind of selfish, self-absorbed guy. He's He's someone who looks at everybody on the train and classifies them and and picks up on these certain details, and who, you know, says of his own wife that physical attraction was the only thing she had going for her, you know? Yeah, and that when he gets angry at her, he doesn't yell or scream or even to slap her almost would seem better than what he does. Yeah. That he very calculatedly circles and says, this is what I'm going to do, and just doesn't respond to anything. Yeah, there's something very strange about him, except that like in the end when he cries, when he weeps, it, that's probably the first time he's cried as an adult, I would think. Do you think, just to jump ahead to the end, I mean, what do you think happens in that moment? He does cry. He is in the dirt. Is he crying because this is the ultimate humiliation for him because he's so prissy, he's got to stay clean, he can't, you know, he's someone's taking control of him when he controls everyone else? Or is he crying out of guilt or some kind of realization? Is he changed by this? That's a question that always comes up. I actually would think no. 
I don't, I don't know exactly why he's crying. I think he would find it hard to say also. Probably just animal feeling of brokenness, but also I would picture he seems to like remember childhood in that moment, thinking back yes, to the mountains those. and this children singing in the dark. There's that line made his, the pleasures that made his flesh crawl. Mm-hmm. It's a perhaps I'm reaching, but I do intuitively feel without actually reaching that there's some dark place in him that's being touched on in that moment that he will never quite remember. And there's something deep in him that's hurt that's being felt at that moment as well. And he's going to get up and go back home and just forget it immediately. Mm-hmm. But but that level of vulnerability is touching that thing in him that was hurt a long time ago. Well, there's, you know, what struck me um, on sort of, I don't know, third or fourth reading was that line about what he saw during the war. Yeah. You know, the unburied dead with their entrails and their yeah. shattered bones. And, and I suppose, you know, the, the concept of PTSD probably didn't, it at least wasn't called that at the time that Cheever was writing, but do you think that that could be part of what he's coping with? Um, yeah, that's, there's, could be, yeah. I mean, yeah. my sense is he's probably that kind of person anyway, but but certainly the being in, going through a war would heighten whatever fear or and dislocation that you felt to start with. But he's retained this sense of sort of broken bodies. You yeah. know, there's an idea that it's not just that he saw friends die or that he's, you know, it's it's actually the sense of of the physicality of it. You know, I just wondered if that has something to do with why he preys on weaker people, why he's sort of drawn to people who are maybe, you know, ill in some way, physically. I just think that's what he gets off on. Yeah. To to put it back. (laughs) But but to me, that war imagery was like the idea of like something, that bullet entering in one place and then blowing out, and that that's like the violence that you don't see at first, that that's what's happened with her as well. Mm-hmm. So that's what's what's gone on between them, that this seemingly, to in his mind, small thing happened and it just exploded out the other end. I mean, you could also see that he, again, my, my feeling is, and I cannot prove this, but my feeling is that, you know, when she calls him dear husband, it's a classic crazy person move yeah. to... Yeah, do that. That letter, the whole letter. I know. It's a great, great crazy person letter. But but in some weird way, in my mind, she's right. Mm-hmm. Not that they're married, but that in some alternative universe, they're very much the same type of creature. And that's why, I mean, yeah, she's, she's twisted, but she's seeking union, this impossible union with this person that she somehow in her mad way knows is actually very like her. And that's partly why he's drawn to her as well, because of the the twisted handwriting. And it might be like it would be sort of a standard therapeutic idea that he's drawn to harm her because she she is she is the living embodiment of what he's afraid he might be. Yeah, I mean, initially she seems to be drawn to him because she sees him as a sort of whole successful being while he's drawn to her because she isn't. Why do you think she makes it so easy for him? Well, because she, as I was, partly what you said, she feels she idealizes people uh, and other people. She seems to think other people have much more than they do. She wants to be in that world where there's beauty and love and these sort of pathetic-sounding things she dreams about. But I think at the same time, there's also a, a knowingness on her part that he isn't really that. Like, I think it's a, it doesn't say it overtly, but it does describe the way that people can be attracted on the face of it to something 
the surface of a person that looks like one thing, but I think we all have a sense of the less obvious or less visible qualities that people have. We can see it in, in their bodies, and I think she would very well pick up on both as she says, she, I could tell you like you prey on weak people, but I think she would also be able to tell that he in some way was a weak person. But, yeah, she's she's mas- very masochistic in her approach to him, clearly. Now, you referred to it before as a, as a revenge story, and, you know, he leaves her weeping in bed, and she leaves him weeping in the dirt, and there's a certain symmetry to it. And she says, now I've done what I needed to do, and, and I can wash my hands of this. Do you think she has got revenge? Do you think that was what she wanted? Yeah, I do also think she wanted she wanted him to listen to her, and that if if she had spoken to her in the office, it, it wouldn't have been a good conversation, certainly. But she might not have come after him with a gun. <laughs> um, but I don't think it's going to change her fundamentally either. She may feel a little better for a while. It perhaps was good on some level that she did that, as opposed to trying to kill herself or something. But but I don't think it's going to solve her problem. Yeah, or change anything that big. That was what I didn't like about it the first time was the perfect closure, mm-hmm. and yet nothing has changed. It just it just that that combination was slightly irritating to me. Mm-hmm. But I also feel that some when I read it now, I do feel that in this conversation they've had that some for at least a moment, like this depth of anguish has been touched on. Like her letter, her whole her whole dialogue is great because on one hand it's just hysterical and crazy sounding, but when she's quoting from, I, I believe she's quoting from the book of Job, Yeah, she's asking such de- legitimate questions. Where is the place of understanding? Where shall wisdom be found? The depth saith it is not in me. The sea saith it is not with me. Like even if she's crazy, she's asking really l- legitimate questions that we all ask and that saying, I want love and these are this is what I'm looking for. How can you not be touched by that? even if she's creepy and horrible, there's some part of her that's quite innocent. And like when I was reading her, I tried to catch that childlike quality in her voice, partly because it's scary to have Mm -hmm. somebody with a gun talking like that, but also because I do think part of her is like that. Yeah. She just, she really wants something good in the world. And it's that combination of real madness and and it does happen, I feel, in some strange way here that she's forced him to acknowledge. I mean, mm-hmm. it, it, it goes all wrong, but I do think there there's a certain truth to what she's saying that is given a little bit of room here. Right. I mean, she says several times, I'm better than you. I'm better than you. I wouldn't agree you. with that. That's, that's to me, that's the bad part of her talking, yeah. uh, the wish to feel superior. But it's just she's, she's so confused. Yeah. She's trying to make herself feel better. <laughs> So I think what what's what happens in the story is some weird pocket of consciousness, which is you know it's certainly not a positive or uplifting thing, but it's like there's some acknowledgement that the both of these people are desperately lost, and that's what their connection was about in some way. I think, and it doesn't you know it's gone and it's twisted finally, but it's just very anguished the the way that this yeah. happens. Yeah, it's interesting. I was reading. Um, I read somewhere that the story was partly based on Cheever's brother, who had fired a secretary and then got threatening letters from her and, and who also punished his wife by refusing oh, to really? speak to her for, for several days. But I also saw, I think, the journal quote that um, your student was maybe referring to, and, and there was it was sort of shocking how much relevance it had for this story, so I noted it down. So 
this was actually about 12 years after he wrote the story, but Cheever in his journals wrote about going to see a psychiatrist with his wife. And he says, the, the picture as I saw it was that I, an innocent and fortunate creature, had married a woman who suffered from deep psychic disturbances. The picture as it was presented to me <laughs> was of a neurotic man, narcissistic, egocentric, friendless, and so deeply involved in my own defensive illusions that I had invented a manic depressive wife. <laughs> So you you actually see you know in this character you can kind of see what he what he writes about himself, or what he writes about you know others' perception of him. Well, I don't doubt that he was selfish and neurotic. I think that writers tend to be. I think artists tend to be. But I also, I mean, I think that's part of what gives the story power, though, is that I think that he could identify with both characters, even yeah. if it wasn't him literally who was involved in a situation like this. But I think he could understand what it would be like to treat someone like that. Yeah. And I also think he might understand what it was like to be treated like that, even if he didn't experience either literally. I think that he, he understood the pain of both sides of that equation. Yeah. When you read the story, are you are you rooting for either of them? Well, I'm. In I, sense. I, I guess I've I read it so many times I can't really say I'm rooting because I I know what it is. They're in their positions. Their positions aren't yeah, going to change. Yeah. Um, of course, the first time I read it, I was rooting for her, but I was, was resenting the fact that there was simply no one else. There was simply no choice. You had to, <laughs> there was no one else to root for, um, and I don't like feeling like I have to root for a particular character, but. The second time, it's like it's pointless to root for them because neither of them, but I'm kind of subtly, I'm on the side of both of them. She has, I feel even if she's crazy, there's a little more hope for her, possibly. Not a whole lot, really, but there is some capacity for something in her that he doesn't seem to have at all, but but I still feel, I don't know, I still feel something for him. Well, I suppose, you know, what you mentioned about his his actual vulnerability and the way he reflects he's sort of cast back to childhood in that in those moments at the end and also that line where he's i suppose getting off the train and he hears the sound of the water the rain dripping yeah it sort of reminds him of some kind of shelter he can't really remember yeah. there's some yeah. sensation there and you feel that there's something there's some moment in the past or some moment in him where something went wrong that he might possibly be returned to yeah, and also that one beautiful paragraph where he's guiding off the train with her and he sees the neighbors who don't even look at him. Yeah. There, there's this idea that he this is his home and he's like he's seeing it for the first time. Yeah. How beautiful it is. And he looks at the man with a feeling of inexorable sorrow. And you do feel that he, he does have the capacity to feel that in him somewhere, mm -hmm. that it took this nightmarish thing happening to wake up those feelings, but mm -hmm. they did wake up, even if it's just for a few minutes. Well, thank you so much, Mary. You're welcome. John Cheever, who died in 1982, published 11 story collections and five novels in his lifetime, including The Housebreaker of Shady Hill and Other Stories and Bullet Park. His stories Reunion, The Swimmer, and The Enormous Radio were featured in earlier episodes of the New Yorker Fiction Podcast. Mary Gateskill's most recent story collection, Don't Cry, came out in 2009. She's been publishing fiction in The New Yorker since 1995. You can download more than 100 previous episodes of The New Yorker Fiction Podcast in the iTunes Store. You can download the weekly audio edition of The New Yorker through iTunes or audible.com. On the Writer's Voice Podcast, you can hear short stories from the magazine read by their authors. You can find the Writer's Voice and other New Yorker podcasts on your podcast app. 
Tell us what you thought of this program on our Facebook page, or rate and review us on iTunes. The New Yorker Fiction Podcast is produced by Jill Duboff of NewYorker.com. I'm Deborah Treisman. Thanks for listening. This episode was brought to you by Empower. Are you ready for life's important milestones? What will your retirement look like? Do you know your net worth? Empower can help answer your money questions so you don't have to worry. With a real-time dashboard and real live conversations, you can get clarity on your real-life financial goals. Join 18 million Americans and take control of your financial future to empower what's next. Start today at empower.com.